This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Rastan, today, we will be meeting two people who are going to help us to understand the late, great Malaysian writer, Salih Banjonid, who died recently at the age of 76. And first, we will be meeting somebody who knew him personally and who was inspired by Salih Banjonid, and that is Dr. Anne Lee. Hello, Anne. Hi. You knew Salih, but I don't know if you'd seen him for a, a, quite a while. Let's, let's see if we can understand the man himself, the man you knew, and his work and the impact upon yourself and other people. Hmm. Uh, who, who was the man you knew? Yeah, I, I'm glad you made that point, Cam. It's just really my kind of personal perspective, and there would be so, so many others. I kind of associate, it was just maybe kind of 10-year period, maybe less from the time when I was in my mid-20s. I had kind of pretty much recently come back to Malaysia from, from uh, the UK where I'd done a film degree and, and I'd been in Sabah and this was my first kind of uh, 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 trying to find my feet in KL and trying to find other you know, writers, poets, playwrights, etc., who, you know, who were Malaysian and who were already there and I, I could feel some kind of continuity with or whatever, you know. And at that time, I mean, there was school books in Bangsa was the kind of, uh, was a very important place to kind of hang out. And that's where, you know, Saleh would, would read poems and along with others uh, and, and other places. But school books also uh, was run by uh, Ike Ong and I think, it was not long after that that he actually published under school books a whole range of new that what were new books then looking at uh, I think there's one called Southeast Asia uh, uh, writes back you know against the sort of uh, colonial empire kind of thing of writing so this was another time of finding Malaysian writing in English uh, and making it more accessible for people so uh, at that time I mean you're in your young 20s so first job more or less whatever and then so you go in the evenings or go weekends to kind of hang out and and find and that's how I, I met Saleh and and there you know um, there was all these kind of Rehman Rashid was also uh, uh, you know um, he'd, he'd written my Malaysian uh, Malaysian journey um, uh, at, at already and uh and um Saleh's book of poems um the Sajak Sajak Saleh poems sacred and profane uh that was published in in in, in 1987 so so there was still this kind of glow of of that which is uh, uh um very very you know you, you could buy that and carry it and kind of you know read it sort of <laughs> it was better than a passport and he also had a column in the NST. I think Tuan Chai has mentioned this. It's called As I Please. And I would read that, make a point of reading that. I think it was every week or something like that. Uh, because it was a comment on, on, on literature. It was a comment on current affairs as well. And in a way that helped you to understand and learn more. And it was funny and it was, it was rude and it was, you know, uh, beautifully written. And the very fact that, you know, his creation of the word bumijois alone is, is <laughs> he deserves world fame based on that, you know, so as an encapsulation of trying to find words that match the times, that, that speak for the times, you know. Um, and, uh, and I also knew him, you know, he was, had such a reputation for, for being a, a maverick. I mean, there was this kind of, you know, wow, did you hear the famous story of when Saleh peed on an artwork uh, at the National Art Gallery uh, because he didn't agree with it, you know, and it was like, whoa, somebody did that. It was like a huge deal. 
and then you meet him and he was everything that you expect a kind of maverick poet to be, you know, uh, in person, you're bursting, very vibrant to be with and spat a lot when he was speaking, but beautiful language and, and just laughter and rudeness, as a, that rude, rude health, rude language, a rude being. So it, he was very inspiring in, in, in that sense. And, you know, the other stories about how he had, at UM, he had been this very flamboyant lecturer. And I mean, in some ways, when I see Fami Reza sort of wearing all black and, and, and kind of, you know, uh, the beret, uh, kind of mocking and yet adopting that persona, uh, I think Saleh did that as well, you know, sort of jeans uh, and then he'd wear this black shirts and they always like unbutton the first two so you, know, you could see this, this smooth chest. I mean, you know, in another life and all the rest of it, but it was still very, very uh, engaging. Um, and so you would be listening to his work, but you'd also be looking at him. But can I ask, you mentioned... Um Rehman Rashid just now, who wrote exclusively in English. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned Fami Reza, who, who he's an illustrator, but his work is principally in the Malay language. And Saleh Ben Jonid operated in both yes. languages. Yes, yes. I think it's true to say he was not talking to two separate communities, though. I think that there, that there was a definite Saleh Ben Jonid-ness across both languages. Well, I think the kind of Finding his place is a grand theme of, of his work. He was born in Malacca, early 1940s, 1941, I think. Uh, and then becomes, you know, this, he, goes, he goes to Australia as a, as a uh, Colombo plan scholar. And this obviously changed, uh, a, you know, it was a very, very formative part. I mean, everything is formative, lab, but, you know, in, in terms of his work, uh, uh, um, and I think the biography that is summarized in the play that he wrote called The Amo of uh, uh, Solo, published by Silverfish Books, um, it talks about how uh, he, um, he was one of the last Colombo plant scholars sent to Australia to study English. Instead of studying, he got an Australian fellow student pregnant and married her in his first year, 1963, at the University of Adelaide. Due to her family's disapproval, the young couple moved to the University of Tasmania. There, he became the student of the late James Macaulay, one of Australia's major poets. And he would talk about that influence uh, um, um, of Macaulay and, and, and how that kind of influenced his worldview and certainly his, 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 his writing and, and so on. But when he came back, uh, I think he also, uh, and I think there's, there's that wonderful two-part uh, radio uh, uh, series on, on ABC, which by, by his daughter, mm. Anna, um, also illustrates a lot more about what, what was happening to him and the challenges uh, uh, that, that he has, you know, faced throughout his life. I mean, I really only knew a tiny, tiny section of that. Um, but, you know, you look at the person's work as much as you look at the person, you know, um, because they would be so interchangeable. Um, uh, and I think what he wrote then appealed to a lot of, I don't just, well, it's not left-leaning, but, you know, a, a kind of contrary to the typical Malayu poet and, and what he wrote about. Because, you know, he's, his language is, 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 as he, I think he calls it, you know, earthy authenticity. Uh, uh, so there's a lot of four-letter words. There's a lot of stuff which you, can, you cannot find. Uh, uh, and, and his imagery in Malay poetry, which I think is is, is very um, um, contrary to the proper canon that 
you know, we are all supposed to read of the established poets. So I don't know that he had two different types of audience. I mean, maybe, yes, but, but you know, he's so out there for a lot of, of, of the, 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 you know, the typical Malay poetry canon. And you can see this, I think, in, in his, his mocking of a lot of those sorts of voices um, in the play, The Amor of, of Matsolo, because it's, it's, it's satirical of, the, of both the sort of um, uh, typical Malay poet as approved by society, that is, as approved by the establishment. And he's also mocking of, of academics who write and, or pontificate, you know, about literature. I, I also knew him. I didn't know him as well as you did. And, uh, and I was always pleased every time I met him that he remembered by name from one meeting to the next. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And I, I felt really kind of, oh my God, Sally Benjamin remembers me. Yeah. Um, but he was, he was, he didn't want to pretend to be polite. You know, he, he wanted to yeah. be what he wanted to be. But his work, on the other hand, I think is quite literary. It's really well formed. The other person that you would be talking to, I hope, would, would, would give shed more light on this. But uh, um, certainly for me, the kind of imagery that he refers to, you know, there's a lot of sensuality that's uh, uh, represented by both the environment, the landscape, and the female figures, of course, features a lot in, in his writing. And religious, you know, there are themes that, of course, that, as, as we might expect, that change, you know, from, from earlier Saleh to, you know, middle Saleh to later Saleh. But that voice, which would be to always challenge expected things of what it is to be Malay in his time. Uh, I think he, he, yeah, rubbed up against a lot of that. And yet he, you know, he was keen to discover more and appreciate more of his cultural roots that by going to Australia and having that whole sort of experience be, be such a large part of his life, he then had to kind of, you know, it seems like clearly he had to reconnect and, 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 and was able to do so in, 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 in his uh, poetry and in, and in, in the language. I, I think for me anyway, like, you know, the displacement uh, and trying to find where you fit uh, was something in which it was a, a, a dislocation or, or displacement in which he thrived, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so sort of challenging and, and biting at everybody in a way, you know, kind of. Uh, and I think there, there are, the way he appears, it's sort of on the fringes of some things. I mean, like, for example, in, in, in TK Sabapati's writing the modern, you know, selected texts on art and art history in Singapore, Malaysia and Southeast Asia, he, he has an appearance on two pages uh, and they are both in relation to his response to what was called towards a mystical reality that was kind of seen as, as a, 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 it was an exhibition um, by uh, Reza Piyadasa and Sulaiman Essa and it's sort of like a published as a, as a manifesto as well. And although he's famous for having, you know, peed on the work, he, he's in a footnote which explains that he actually wrote an essay in response, or he wrote a more uh, kind of, you know, considered piece uh, uh, as well. Um, and it's written, I think it's Kencing dan Kesenian Surat dari Salibenjone untuk Piyadasa. And it's in Dewan Sastra, um, a 1975 July 15 issue in which he, exp you know, his response to the exhibition includes that he says, you know, I remember Jasper John saying, what makes something art is its constitution in the context of art. My agreement with John's hangs on that something, 
Context is important. Tradition too is important. The circumstances of intellectual assumptions are important. And he says, more importantly, art is based on reality, but art and reality are not identical. If we truly value life in reality, we cannot possibly make the mistake of coalescing art and reality. So, you know, various responses that he had to this work. And you can see that it was at the same time completely rude uh, and completely considered. Uh, and I think that is part of the, the, the uniqueness. Um, you know, not, not that we have to have iconoclastic artists in order to kind of uh, have a sense of, of what that person's contribution is. But to me, that's best kind of symbolizes another part of Saleh, which the spitting and the flirting and the, and the you know, just being out there uh, hides, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. There was definitely a, a lot of method to the madness there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So can I ask you on a personal level then, at that time that you met him, you were yourself in, uh, you, writing plays. You started writing plays that were performed yeah. in Kuala Lumpur. Um, and you've also gone on to, many years later, gone on to do a PhD looking at satire in Malaysia and in, in Indonesia, which, as you've alluded to earlier, was something that Salih Ben personified, really. Has he influenced you personally uh, in, in your, your, your journey? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, you, you kind of, um, it's, it's often said you, you, you try to find people who are like-minded, you know, w when you are not fitting in necessarily. Uh, and then you find other people who are not fitting in. And, and in that, uh, you find a kind of confidence, I suppose, some kind of connection that, that does give you some kind of legitimacy to write what you want to write. Now, there were a lot of men at that time, you know, and there's, there's some problematic, definitely problematic kind of assumptions and positions that Saleh's writing brings up to me. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's of course, there were people also, Adiba Amin, you know, other people whose writing to me kind of were very important as a generation you know, earlier than, than me. Um, Kituan Chai's work also for me, you know, because it's quite political um, and yet, it, it, you know, we're using artful forms and, and expression. Um, I think definitely you, you find the influences and then you choose to keep what bits, you know, are, 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 that you're aware of and carry on, you know. Well, and uh, thank you very much for, for that uh, enthusiastic retelling of... Uh, the Sally Van Jonet that you knew. I also hope that uh, future generations of uh, bright-eyed Sabahans arriving in Kuala Lumpur for the first time, bright lights, big city, will will meet their equivalent of a Sally Van Jonet. I don't. There isn't. Isn't there one? That isn't there is. Yeah. Who would there be now? Well, I suppose maybe some self-appointed ones, but <laughs> nothing like the real deal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Anne. But in a moment, we're going to discover more about um, the late, great Sally Ben Jornid here on A Bit of Culture on BFM 89.9. Hello, and we are back with myself, Cam Ruslan, on this uh, special edition of A Bit of Culture, where we are spending a bit of time looking a little bit more in depth into the, the life and work of the late, great Sally Ben Jornid, who died recently. And just now we spoke to Anne Lee, who knew Saleh personally and told us about 
Sally the man. <laughs> and now what's really exciting for me is we're going to talk to uh, Professor Andrew Ung. Hello, Andrew. Hello. And just to say who you are, Professor Andrew, he's um, Associate Professor of English Literature at Monash, Malaysia. Yes. And the exciting thing for me is that unlike so many people I know who speak about Sally ben Jonid, Andrew, you never actually met Sally ben Jonid. No, I never met him. Which is great, because then you've concentrated on his work. Yeah. And you've written uh, some papers on his work, yeah. which we're looking at, which, which aspects? Um, I, I wrote a paper on his poems. I wrote another paper that included him as uh, part of my discussion. And I also wrote another one on, on his play. The play being the Amok of Mark Solo. Yes, which is based on one of his uh, poems as well. And so when you've been uh, studying his works, and perhaps also teaching his works, I'm going to guess? Not really. No, just yeah. studying then. I just, I just do research on his work. Right. What do you make of the works of Saleh ben Jonid? Saleh ben Jonid is quite eclectic because he writes poetry, he writes plays, he also writes... Um, sort of um, journalistic pieces. He had, he had a column before in New Space Time. So, and they all sort of converge at some point because they all sort of more or less deal with the same themes. But primarily, my focus has always been more his poetry and, uh, and more recently his play. So I can speak about these two in general and, and how they tend to have converging sort of uh, themes like, for example, uh, his, um, his diatribe against the government, uh, his... Uh, he makes fun of the uh, sort of the, the kind of English that Malaysian uses and calls it Imelchin, which is basically a, a hybrid word of English, Malay, and Chinese. Uh, he wrote in English and in Malay. The, yes. Eng the English that I've, I've read, the language is really well considered. It's, uh, it's coming from deep, long English language traditions of poetry. Mm -hmm. Is there a key similarities or a key, are there key similarities or differences between the English and the Malay? Are there two um, Saleh ben Jonids there? Yes, I mean, he, he has a lot of Malay poems which he replicates into English. But my feeling is that his Malay poems are actually better. He has an ear for the lyricism of, of the Malay language. And so he captures it quite well in his poetry. Whereas with, in, with his English poems, Although he has all the usual rhyme and all that, there's a, there's a harsher quality to it. And I suppose perhaps, I mean, that may actually be his intention um, because he is using a language basically that is uh, that's considered sort of a secondary, uh, he's using a language basically that, that the establishment uh, views as, uh, as a secondary. So perhaps he is deliberately using that language in, in that harsh, in that sort of uh, angry way uh, that is slightly unlike his Malay poems, which tend to be a lot more mellifluous, a lot, a lot more listenable. Mm -hmm. And yeah. what, kind of, what kind of themes are there at play in his, in his Malay poems, for instance? Yeah, they're, the, they're the same themes. It's again, you know, attacking the establishment, uh, drawing attention to the fault lines of the, of, of the uh, Malay majority, uh, uh, notions of Bumiputra. And he also has his sort of uh, love poems that uh, always tend to border very strongly on the erotic. And I think that's another reason why uh, the establishment has more or less uh, marginalized his poetry because apart from the blasphemy that a lot of his poems tend to sort of um, express, there's also that very strong inclination towards the erotic, which I think can be quite off-putting for a lot of people who are not used to that sort of uh, uh, throat or motive in, in poetry, especially in Malay poetry, which tends to be much more uh, conversational. You know, um, they are not meant to, to, to create or cause 
dissension or upset in the listener. The traditional Malay poetry, they tend to be very musical, they tend to be conversational, they tend to be about, you know, happy things, appropriate things, morality, so on and so forth. But, but there's also the, the erotic or the ribald, the, 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 the lewd. <laughs> in, in Malay, um, I mean, not necessarily poetry per se, but, but in the oral uh, traditions, uh, okay. like, you know, double entendres in Himalaya. I think that he's, he was surely coming also from, from that tradition, a, a more, I don't know, folk tradition. tradition actually, actually, we started enjoying his, his influences. They tend to be more Western poets. If you look at a lot of uh, what he says in his poetry and a lot of the poems he writes as well, he tends to play homage directly or indirectly to a lot of Western poets, like Australian ones especially, because I think he was trained in Australia and I think he was also trained by a poet. So there's a lot of that, uh, that, uh, that um, sort of indirect or direct uh, um, owing to, to that tradition. Whereas I think, he, he, I think he's interested in, in Malay poetry more for the form and what the form can do. Um, which is why I say early on, his Malay poems, they tend to be sort of a, a lot more calmer, a lot more tamer than his English poems. Maybe because the language doesn't allow him to take that harsher tone. Maybe the Malay language itself is, is very uh, tranquil, as opposed to English, where you can you know, find words that can be quite difficult to listen to because of the, the hardness of the word. Yeah, but I'm not, sh- I, I mean, I, I'm not sure because I've not done any research on you know, uh, how much influence Malay poetry has on his, uh, on his work. But certainly, when his, uh, his uh, first collection of poetry, which is the bilingual, uh, Sajat Sajat Sadeh, uh, when it wasn't very well received by, by the literati circle, I think he was quite upset with that. And you know, from that point onwards, he basically stopped writing Malay altogether and he only focused on his English language writing and his, and his work became, I suppose, more, uh, a little bit more on the angrier side after, after his first collection of poetry. Can I, can I take us now to the, the play? Okay. Um, first of all, what's the story? Uh, basically, the, I mean, the play is based on one of his poems, and so it's about this man, Matt Solo, who was a university um, lecturer, professor, and one day he just decides to give up his uh, comfortable university job and his uh, metropolitan life and goes back to the kampong with his wife. And uh, as the play unfolds, you find him, you find his, his mental state getting worse and worse. So it's a play about how you know, in, in wanting to free oneself from the shackles of society, from the codes and morality of the status quo, I think he, he began to unravel. So the play is a little bit sort of uh, ambiguous in terms of precisely what he wants to do because you, you would think that, you know, a, a rebellious poet like him would, would want to create a character uh, who is rebellious. And, and so that's why we are reading the play. But the fact that he ended quite tragically and, you know, he didn't accomplish anything at the end of the, of the play, his main character, also suggests that Maybe after all these all these years of rebelling against the establishment, he realized that you know, like his character in the play, he hasn't actually gotten very far with all that. Hmm. Mm. And uh, well, you've never actually seen a production of the play, have you? I don't think it's ever been produced. Right. I don't think any of his plays is produced simply because I think to produce his play is going to be quite costly. Uh, for the fact that his stage sets are actually quite extensive. He requires a lot of things for his stage desk. And many of his scenes are very brief. So unless you have a, 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 a way in which you can sort of stage the scenes and uh, have them sort of uh, change in quick succession, it's very difficult to actually, to actually perform the play. 
and the, the main character will have to memorize a lot of lines because the play essentially, although it's uh, not it's not a monologue, uh, the main character has the um, has I suppose more or less the entire play he has to sort of uh, recite. The other characters they just say you know a few words here and there and that's it. And it's a long play. <laughs> so, okay, so. Um... It's a it's a polemic. I mean, it was a di- it's a diatribe. It's a, it's not a comedy. It's a, I would call it an existentialist play. It's an absurd play. So there is the element of comedy because the tradition of the, of the absurd theater um, the comedy is always there. But the comedy is sort of a black comedy. You laugh, but you feel uneasy um, laughing at the situation because you realize that it's actually not meant to be funny, and yet what is displayed before you is funny. So that, that's always that tension uh, watching absurd plays and in Sally's play that comes to quite quite uh, uh, evidently where whereby you have a lot of scenes that are that are actually quite tragic. They're, they're quite uh, painful to watch if you're a stage and yet there is a, a lot of sort of slapstick and comical element and punning um, going on in, in, in those scenes as well. So so I would call it an absurd play. I won't call it a comedy. So and what language is it in? It's English. Right, right. And do you have a sense then of, bearing in mind the themes that he was interested in, uh, the kind of context of Sally Ben-Jonid in his time, vis-a-vis also other writers who, uh, I mean, if, if I know in my time, and I, I was a generation later, the, the, the concentration was on uh, identity politics. It was, on, oh, okay. it was also on, on identity, who are we, where do we come from, roots and that kind of thing. I don't know, in, in Saleh's time, what, what, what kind of themes? Was it like I a nation Saleh, building? This is, Saleh was writing in the 70s and the 80s, and his work actually didn't sort of go beyond that. Even, even his later poem, uh, later collection of poems, his second collection, which, is a, which I think was a 21st century publication, many of the poems there were actually replicated from the first collection, and the additional poems, they sort of tend to still revolve around themes that were like about 20 years ago. So yeah, so themes like nationalism, racial identity, racial relationships, uh, themes like, you know, uh, um, the, um, the subordination of the subject to very authoritative forms of religiosity, to very authoritative forms of uh, ministerial figures. Um, it's, uh, it's the, 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 the whole issue of how the modern Malay is increasingly becoming very soulless, as it were, because they are pursuing, you know, material wealth and no longer taking care of you know, nature and all this stuff. So yeah, those sort of things which are, which are more or less uh, uh, what a lot of writers uh, at that point who are writing in English were also uh, concerned with because Saleh belonged to this group of writers. I mean, he, he writes in English and so in the eyes of the establishment, he would already be sort of marginalized. And uh, one of the reasons why he chose to write in English at the end of the day is I think precisely because he wanted to make a stand and say that, you know, there is no such thing as a national language. And, and okay, or rather, what he's trying to say is that there is, I mean, although we can have national language, we should not be discriminating other languages, you know, and, and sort of put them in a hierarchy, you know, whereby, you know, English and Chinese and, and Indians are no longer considered, you know, a Malaysian language. Um, so those things, they tend to keep recurring in his, in his poems and in his play. And because he wrote so little at the end of the day, his entire uh, over is basically it's two uh, books of poetry and a play and a collection, I think two collections of his uh, um, journalistic essays, which more or less sort of replicate each other as well. So, um, and, and I think he sort of did not really write anymore after the 80s. So they tend to sort of, you know, um, 
um, cluster around the, uh, the, the themes of the 80s and the late 70s. Right. Now, as I said, you, you did not meet the man himself, but you've met people who, uh, you, you met his daughter, for instance, who's yes. done some podcasts about her father. Uh-huh. And I mean, presumably you, you've heard stories about this larger than life character. Do, does that fit with the words that you have read? Uh, well, I mean, he, I think you, you probably heard of this. He peed at an art exhibition in the yep. 70s, you know, just to make a stand. And so I think he does sort of lift up to his reputation and uh, the, the, the sort of anger and drive that he exhibits in his writings is not just on paper, but he actually sort of lives it out. He actually uh, goes around and, and, and shows people that, you know, I'm not, just, I'm not just somebody who writes things, I actually do them. So yeah, he's not somebody who hides behind his words, but he actually lives up to his words. And well, uh, we're going to wrap up now, Andrew, but uh, you said that uh, Sally Ben-Jordan had a, a fairly small body of work, but would there be uh, one thing that you, for people who've not read his work, is there, is there one thing that you would like people to to look at? And Well, I think, I think, I think the, the work that sums up his career and his, and his uh, persona best would be his first uh, bilingual collection of poetry, which is Sajat Sajat Saleh. It's, it's actually poetry in both English and Malay. And well, there are some Malay poems of his which he translates into English, but there are also in, uh, poems in English and Malays that are, are distinct in themselves. So it gives you a nice, I, nice idea of how, how well-versed he is in both languages and how comfortable he is writing poetry in, in, in both languages. And also um, the, the kind of um, the, the aesthetical capacity that he is able to exhibit uh, in his work, and I think it's important that people read him because um, he, like I said, he does have um, valuable uh, things to contribute to the literary scene in Malaysia. It's just that people tend to stay away from him, and you can't blame these people for staying away from him because his work sometimes can be very offensive. I mean, if you are not somebody who is who is uh, used to reading blasphemy or you know um, uh, vulgarity or you know very overt sort of sexual images, it can be quite difficult to sort of get into some of his writings. Great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Andrew Ng, uh, Associate Professor of English Literature at Monash, Malaysia. Yep. And um, this has been our, our bit of culture. We've been looking a little bit more in depth at the late, great Saleh Ben-Jonid. And so uh, thank you very much. And please join us next week for another episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.